Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi. This conversation includes graphic descriptions of sexual abuse that may be triggering to some listeners. Please take care while listening. Hi, I'm Amy Ziering, one of the co-series creators and the co-directors of Alan V. Farrow, and I'm so glad to be back talking with co-director and co-series creator Kirby Dick and our co-creator and lead producer Amy Hurdy. So in this podcast, the three of us are going to start off talking a bit about Amy Hurdy's tour de force investigative work in episode three. We're also going to be playing for you two new clips from Woody and Mia's taped phone conversations and speaking a bit about how we actually came into possession of those tapes. We're also going to be playing a small excerpt from the videotape of Dylan when she was just seven years old, describing to her mother what had happened to her. And I just want to flag that it's a very, very intense excerpt. So I want to underline that trigger warning at the start. You're also going to be hearing a new clip from the interview that we did with Maureen Orth. And you might remember Maureen as the Vanity Fair reporter we interviewed on our series, who back then was one of the few voices asking the hard questions other people weren't. And we're also going to hear another clip from our interview with Rosanna Scotto, who at that time was a very popular local TV news reporter. Lastly, towards the end of the podcast, Amy and I are going to be reaching out and speaking with Dr. Anna Salter. Anna is an American psychologist, and she's an internationally renowned expert on predators and predatory behavior. She's the author of several books and a teaching fellow at both Tufts and Harvard. And Anna is going to talk to both of us about what she knows about the behavior of predators and some truths about coaching. So now let's get started. I want to dive in with Amy and Kirby. Episode three is really the part of the series we do our deepest investigative dive, and we share with everybody a lot of new evidence, original interviews, and what we discovered after exhaustively examining thousands of pages of documents, court transcripts, police files, affidavits, arrest warrants, testimonies, etc. So Amy, I wanted to start out by asking you what for you was like the most surprising moment or what what when you finally got a hold of it, you were like, oh my God, I can't believe I found this. What was it? Oh, for me, the most amazing thing was finding the New York City Child Welfare Administration investigative file, because that has been cited time and time again, right, by Woody Allen as a defense that he was cleared by New York City. And when you read that file, you get an entirely new perspective on the case. And it was incredible to read that. And then going through all of those court documents and pulling names off of them and contacting those subjects. Um, Cheryl Harden, for example, that's how we found Cheryl Harden. She was Paul Williams' supervisor, um, the investigator of the Social Services Administration there in New York City. And her interview was just amazing and revelatory and heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking. Yeah. Amy, what did she think when, I wanted to ask you, what did she think when you first reached out to her? Because she must have been like, wait, what, who, why? I mean, like, so obscure. Very suspicious. 
everybody contacted for this this project wow. was very suspicious initially and they're always who are you and then you know you wait and hear back from them two weeks later and they say yes i i looked you up and i did a lot of research on exactly <laughs> who you are before i ever called you back and wow. you almost have to give references and a lot of the times you know a lot of time in, in this project um a lot of people wanted to know who else are you talking to and that's a very mm-hmm. careful question right who else who else are we talking to and i always just say I'm protecting subjects and we don't ever list who we've talked to and who we haven't, but we're pursuing the truth. And we hope that you share your story and what happened in this process. And, and, you know, they took chances. Cheryl took a chance and sat down and was open with us. And the interview you got with her was just amazing. You know, it's interesting that you said that everybody was very suspicious. What were they suspicious of? I mean, it's, these are all people who tried to tell the story and in one way or another were shut down. Yeah. So Kirby, you know, I do think it's probably in a large part what you're saying that people who actually spoke were shut down and actually received a surprising and alarming amount of retribution that had real life consequences. So they might have also just been suspicious of Amy Hurdy's request because they were like, I don't know if I can trust people in the media to really bear witness in an impartial way. Well, I think you're correct. I mean, people who knew the case, like Cheryl Harden, for example, were insiders to the case at the time. And that's kind of why, Amy, they wanted to know who else you were talking to. They wanted to know, are you really going to look at the facts and evidence? And what was so stunning to me was that 25 plus years later, Cheryl Harden was brought to tears when she was remembering still remembering this. all of it. Yeah. Because it was so painful for her as a supervisor of an investigator on this case. And what it meant for her bigger picture, it changed her entire life. She left her career. Yeah. So now I want to talk about right at the very start of episode three, there's a cold open in which we hear a searing audio tape of this conversation that Woody and Mia had on the telephone. Amy, can you explain, like, I don't actually know, how did we get a hold of those phone conversation tapes? Some of the tapes were in a box in a closet in Mia's basement. They had been exhibits in the custody trial, and she had just a few things from that custody trial that she had tucked away in her closet. And then the rest were um, in boxes with other records from the custody trial that we obtained in a different fashion. And what, can you walk us through, like, why were they even taping each other? And then how did you find out these tapes existed? Well, I can't guess as to why he was recording Mia, but uh, Mia said that she began taping Woody after she realized that he was taping her. And she asked one of her kids, how would I tape him? And they said, well, this is how you do it. And so then she began taping him, she said, in self-defense. And if you listen to the, the audio recordings, the interesting thing is that there is a tone and an attitude that's revealed through those recordings. It's very revelatory of a side of Woody Allen that people have never seen or heard. No, that's so true. And I remember first listening to it thinking, I've never heard that voice or persona ever. Then how did you hear or know about them? It was actually just complete happenstance. I was sitting on the floor of of Mia's basement looking through this box of various documents and saw a couple of these cassette recordings and they had the words exhibit, exhibit A, exhibit B, and, you know, gosh, audio. Okay, wonderful. (laughs) What's the audio of it? But had no idea what they were of until we actually got them back and processed them and, and listened to them. You then go upstairs to Mia and then she says what? Um, no, she pretty much said, I don't know. I don't remember. And then she actually came downstairs while I was looking through other boxes and said, you know what? I'm just going to throw this stuff away and picked up the box and walked away with it to the dumpster. 
What? And you, <laughs> what did you do? Of course, I taste her down. <laughs> I taste her down in the driveway, literally in the driveway. Why did she want to throw him away, do you think? It's painful memories. It's painful memories. It's all painful reminders of a past that she would much rather forget. Well, it's interesting that her, her memories of a, what, 10-plus-year relationship are all now uh, aggregated as court documents. And tinged with so much pain. One of the things to me that was mind-boggling was that Amy Ziering was able to elicit from Mia some warm memories, some loving memories of, of that relationship before all the pain and, and, and how you got her to go back to that time of the happy memories was really amazing to me because the only, only thing I ever heard from her was so much pain. So one more thing I want to clarify is that when you recovered these tapes, Amy, there was nothing on them that specified which one was taped by whom. Yes, correct. So sometimes we're listening to a tape that Mia recorded, and sometimes we're listening to a tape that Woody recorded, correct? Yes, we didn't know who had recorded which tape. So we couldn't say with 100% certainty who had recorded it. So why did Mia, though, end up in possession then of both sides, both sets of tapes, both her own recorded tapes and Woody's? Mia had the audio tapes. They were entered as exhibits at the custody trial. Oh, so the call in episode three, where Woody jumps off and says, hold on a second, and then states to someone that he's actually taping the call. That call was one that Mia most, she, Mia at that time was not, was most likely not hearing him say that, right? Right. Well, it's just like when you're talking on the phone and somebody says, oh, hang on a second, and they put you briefly on hold while they go to the other line. That's what happened here. Okay. So now we're going to listen to two clips from conversations that Woody and Mia had on the phone. In this first one, Woody talks about the possibility of getting back together with Mia. And I want to clarify that as far as we were able to tell, this was a conversation that happened after the photos were found, but before the alleged attic incident. At one point you said you, you, were, gonna, you were thinking about it, but you wanted us to get back together. That was an open possibility. But, uh... Now don't blackmail me. This is crazy. I'm just saying to you, unless unless you will join me in saying, you know, this is a ridiculous story. You're blackmailing me. No. You're blackmailing me. You mean unless I lie? Okay. That you were what? I couldn't get back with anyone who wouldn't. Who wouldn't lie for you? What's interesting is that at the top of the recording, he puts all of the onus on Mia, all the blame on Mia. Well, this is just not going to work because you've ruined it. He doesn't own responsibility for any of it. Yeah, that's really interesting, Amy. And what was also interesting to me, I know it can be a bit hard to hear, um, particularly what Woody's saying, but at the start, Mia says to Woody, at one point you were thinking about us getting back together. And that struck me because it was very different from what we heard when he was giving all the interviews in public in which he was saying, I'm in love with Sunni and Mia's just being vindictive and she's just angry. Right? Right. And then that was know, the public what So what us. are we hearing here? Sure. What are we hearing here? Is that what he's saying? He's saying, I'm in love with Sunni. Let's no. He's saying, you know, um, it's a possibility we could get back together if you do X, correct? Yeah. I was just thinking what, how I would respond if I heard that. I mean, for, you know, 
it would just be, I mean, again, Mia just seemed, I, I don't know, it just, it's kind of mind-blowing that, that, uh, it, that, first of all, that we hear that conversation, but then to kind of think about what she must have been, what, what must have been going through her mind when she heard it. Okay, so now here's a clip of a phone call in which Mia is trying to figure out exactly where Woody was when he visited her house on the day of the alleged attic incident. Where were you? Can't you tell me that? If I'm to consider, if I were to consider for a moment that Dylan made this whole thing up, then tell me where you were. What room were you in? They searched the whole house for you. They searched the field. They called everywhere. Where were you? Where did you take Dylan? We'll have to talk about with them, with that with them when, when the time comes. We'll no, tell me now. Let's talk about Christy and Danny and Sophie and whoever was there. And I said, you know, we'll have to, they'll have to talk to a number of people and we'll see what, we'll see what comes out. Well, why don't you just tell me where you were? You know? Why don't you just tell me what room you were in? Yeah, I'm saying, I'm saying if Dylan was lying and that you never took her in the attic, then just tell me where you were. Christy and Sophie and Casey's babysitter, they looked everywhere for you. Where were you? Well, they'll have a chance to tell their story. Why can't you just tell me? I don't think that they were lying for you. Well, then you just tell me the truth. Where were you? I'm not asking anybody to lie. Nobody's lied. Tell me where you were. You're stuck, right? Stuck? What's really interesting here is how Mia is trying to work through all of this. She's trying to figure it all out in real time. You can hear her processing it. I was struck by that the first time I heard it. What's interesting for me and what I think about when I hear this, normally you get, as a filmmaker, you get people talking about these moments, 5, 10, 20, in this case nearly 30 years later, we did interview Mia, and, and we have that. But here, this is in real time. I mean, this is actually what was happening. And that's extremely rare. Less so now, obviously, where there are cameras everywhere. You know, there's more of that. But in the 90s, to get this perspective into the 90s is, uh, it's so personal, it's so behind the scenes. And it says so much about, I think, Woody Allen, about Mia, and about their relationship. Which brings us to this next clip I want to play for you. It's a clip again in real time, an excerpt from the Dylan tape. And Dylan, just so everybody knows, is in the bathtub. So you might hear a bit of splashing. And also to remind people that Mia, as you've seen, was always an avid videotaper of her children. You know, she did this very early on before people were doing this all the time. And so she always sort of had a camera on hand. And when this transpired, she decided whenever Dylan volunteered to mention it, she'd grab the camera and start filming. And that's why often the camera's kind of shaky and not, it wasn't anything sort of pre-planned. And sometimes she's grabbing it, you know, haphazardly whenever she thinks Dylan's just going to, you know, express some new thought about it. So here's Dylan expressing something else that occurred to her. Okay. And again, trigger warning for those listening. This is 
contains, you know, really sensitive material. And so please be advised. I never got a chance. Had to do what he said. He was my daddy. He, he had. Yeah. I'm, I'm kidding. I have to do whatever the grown-ups say. I know. I know. It's it's Dawn. It's not I your should've... fault at all. It's not your fault at all. There was nothing you could have done. You were just a little girl. I, I didn't know what he was gonna do. He just did it, and I. Didn't... I know. I know. And it still, it still hurts you? Yeah. Did your daddy do that when you were a kid? No, honey, no. No, daddies don't do that. I wish it was Andre who was my daddy. He would have taken better care of me. Little sweetheart. Oh, my hand. Because his daddy didn't do anything bad to him when he was a little boy. Wow. Oh, that was so intense. It's so hard to hear that. I can't imagine what was going through Mia's mind when she heard it. I, I mean, I have a daughter now who's in her 30s, but when she was seven and she, if she told me something like that, oh, I think that would, that would just completely shake my world. Yeah, so when I first heard this tape, I remember when we were sitting in, in Dylan's house listening with her, it was so harrowing, so harrowing. Yeah, it was just so sad. You know, we talked about how we were going to put this in, this series. I mean, it's such a central part of this whole sort of story, even over 30 years. Uh, but we we really felt it was important to put some of it in. And I think, judging from the reactions we've gotten from people, especially people who are in the field, who are therapists, who work with children who are victims of incest, they, the, these therapists have said it was really important to have it in as well. I mean, I think it's, it's important for, in some ways, that people face this because, you know, our whole society has turned away from it because it is too hard to face. And I think that's what Dylan wanted when she gave us the tape to put a face on this whole subject. Okay, so now we're going to pivot to something less intense from these really private, intimate conversations to hearing a bit more from that interview we did with Maureen Orth, who, as you remember at the time, was a writer for Vanity Fair. And here's a clip in which Maureen talks about just how hard it was for her to get that piece published that presented a more thorough, evidence-based account of these events. And here's her speaking about how her magazine felt when she presented them with her reporting. Well, they were obviously weren't happy. I mean, Vanity Fair. It was interesting because I had to go through eight hours with our legal research team of, uh, of going over paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence. Nobody took on Woody Allen in those days. Absolutely not. I mean, he was this special cultural icon, and particularly he was a genius, okay? He was considered a cultural genius. He was kind of like every nerdy cultural editor in New York 
Woody was the idol because he was the one who was as nerdy as they were, and he was the brilliant one that always ended up with all the beautiful women. It was every guy who was like in one of those positions fantasy. And so um, to to really take on somebody like him um, and, 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 and write this stuff, you, that's why I'm saying it was so based on fact. It was so based on multiple sources. And so what happened was that um, at the end, I had to go through this very rigorous eight-hour session paragraph by paragraph, word for word practically, making sure that all the facts were absolutely straight. And then they said to me that the only way that we could publish the piece would be if, if we got sued by Woody, that Mia Farrow would stand up in court and testify as to the validity of what we were printing from certain, par- you know, from certain parts of the story. And so that's when I had to make the contact to see whether or not she would. And she would, and she would be willing to take a lie detector test. And so I got a handwritten note. I got a handwritten letter back from her that I showed, I gave the attorneys to show that, yes, she would stand up. We more should talk about, like, how crazy it was that they were so nervous they were so nervous publishing anything, right? Like at the time it was presented as he said, she said, and that's what we all thought, but we didn't realize we were only hearing he said, and that the narrative of he said, she said was supplied by he. And that's kind of my takeaway from that. Anytime a celebrity is taken on, um, there is just this natural rush to come to that celebrity's defense. So if Woody could spin a narrative, all of the press and publicists could enable it easily because they were so team Woody. Well, I, the other the other thing that I find very interesting is it just shows how unwilling Mia was to come forward and yeah. talk about this. That yeah. She was trying to make this, keep this as private as possible. And, and why was she? She was doing it to protect her children. And she didn't speak to Maureen. I'm so glad you raised exactly. that point. She didn't even, Maureen never got the interview with her. So A, you know, I want to really point out to people that don't realize this is the first time when you're watching the series, thanks to Amy Hurdy, that you're ever hearing Mia on camera talk about this. She never has before. She wasn't an eager participant at all. And as I said in an earlier episode, she said, I'm only doing this because Dylan asked me and I stand by my kids. So this is a this is really, that's pretty incredible. So we're going to listen to another clip. This is Rosanna Scotto, who at that time was a very popular local TV news reporter talking about what was happening in the media at the time. You know, we live in a different world now after Me Too, where now we start to think more in favor of what the woman is saying rather than doubting what the woman is saying. Back then, you know, it was still a man's world. And the way Woody Allen painted Mia Farrow as a scorned woman who may be unstable, who was upset because he was dating her daughter, it was suspect. It was suspect and he was believed. But now I think if it would have happened now, I think people would have thought, totally different. I didn't understand even at the time how people would think it would be okay for Woody Allen to date Mia Farrow's adopted daughter. I mean, they were in a relationship. They were, for all intents and purposes, married, right? And 
of all Woody for for all purposes, Woody and Mia were married. Okay, and I didn't understand. Take Dylan out of the equation. You didn't have a problem that he was dating Woody was dating Mia Farrow's adopted daughter, a young child that she rescued off the streets. She was orphaned. She took her into her home, made her part of her family. Woody Allen was part of that family unit. No one else thought it was a little strange of all the women in the world. He chose to date Soon Yi. The heart wants what the heart wants. Really? What about the brain? Does the brain come into play at some point? Wow, I was so blown away by Rosanna's interview. Um, what I like about the point she's making, and which really struck me throughout, which I hadn't realized at the time, you know, when all this was happening in the 90s, was how many times in reports you would hear adopted child, adopted daughter, adopted daughter, as if somehow that made things okay, as if somehow if someone's adopted, you know, the normal conventions of, you know, <laughs> of family life that limit certain physical interactions don't apply. We really all need to be vigilant moving forward to not have that, uh, the ability to use that word and deploy it in that way, um, allow to slightly make something horrible and abhorrent seem, you know, normal or somewhat okay. I don't think adopted children think of their parents, you know, 24-7 as not their parents or relate to them differently. And I don't think that parents of adopted children think of them any differently from their biological children or, or should have any rights to treat them any differently. Um, so that really just, I'm, I'm glad that Rosanna says that. Yeah, and I just, I just wanted to add, there's not only the adopted child. I mean, there's all the other children in the family who consider this person their father, right? So... It's it's their experience and their perspective of this as well, which is just becomes incredibly traumatic for them, became incredibly traumatic for them. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Kirby, because it's true. It's like when we interviewed, we made a point of this when we interviewed Daisy and the other siblings. We said, what did you regard Woody as? And they all said a father. And it's a question that we asked and were curious about because Sunyi had said publicly that she never saw Woody as her father that Andre was her only father and Woody was just her mother's boyfriend. So we were curious about how the other siblings felt, the ones who were raised at the same time contemporaneous with Sunyi, and they all said, absolutely, we regarded him as their father. So it would lead one to believe that he functioned for all intents and purposes as her father as well. Even though she was adopted, she came into the family at a very young age. And as we saw throughout episodes one and two, and we learned that, you know, he really was an integral part of the family. Um, we could see it on the videotapes. We heard it from talking to everyone around them in the family. And it would be very hard or strange, at least the other siblings reported, to think or look at him in any way otherwise. But I just really take umbrage at the language of adoption. I think it's really irrelevant. And it's doing, it's doing deceptive work. Okay, so on that note, because we do have to move on, this has been amazing. I'm so glad I learned how we did what we did from you, Amy Hardy. Thank you. And Kirby, always a pleasure to see you from afar. So Amy and I are going to talk to... Anna Salter. 
Anna Salter, you saw in episode three. She's a world-renowned expert on predators. So hi, Anna. Welcome. So you are one of the first and foremost renowned world authorities on these issues. Is that fair to say, Anna? I guess. Yes. <laughs> Anna's modest. She's written several books. Um, and she was we're lucky enough that she squeezed us in to talk with us today. So thank you. Thank you, Anna, for joining us. And thank you for having me. You're an expert on people that commit these kind of crimes, right? Yes. That's where I spend most of my time. I interview four or five of them a month. And I write four or five reports on sex offenders who have been civilly committed every single month. And since 2014, I have interviewed 300 and I believe it's 35 high-risk sex offenders who've been civilly committed just since 2014. So what... What are some of the behaviors you have seen in many of the people you've interviewed over the years? Obsessively focused, intensely focused, almost like a kind of parental stalking. But that is in line with some of the guys I have seen who have molested one kid. It's interesting because many of us think that a child molester or a pedophile, they, they don't ever just molest one kid. Uh, is, that, is that true or is that some kind of misconception? You know, I do really see this all the time where offenders have become uh, completely enamored with one child, obsessed by that child, think about that child all the time. And outside that child, they don't have a, a history that anybody has ever discovered of molesting other children. So obsession with one child, one could say comports with predatory behavior. Absolutely. Many of the guys that I've talked to uh, have gotten, for whatever reason, uh, caught up with this particular kid. This kid is their soulmate. This kid understands them. There's an intrusiveness about any form of stalking that some people believe is as harmful or even more harmful than the abuse itself. There's a sense of being trapped of your boundaries being invaded, of not being able to be a separate person. Jackie Sarajan did an excellent book about the boundary intrusion in that. I would suspect that uh, any parent who's acting like that would, would have a child who felt under attack, uh, who, remember one of the main jobs of childhood is to develop independence an independent self by yourself, someone who won't let you be alone and is always there, is always in your face, is always pressing you. It's what we call a trauma bond, a bond that is twisted by the dynamics of abuse. And what about, um, what's the, the typical response that you see from a perpetrator who is not falsely accused? Um, Darbo. Again, this is a concept of, of uh, Jennifer Freed, which is very useful. And it's deny, uh, attack, reverse roles. I'm the victim. So DARVO, that's D period, A period, R period, V period, O, which stands for deny, attack, reverse, victim, and offender. So you, you turn the tables instead of when you're accused, you immediately counterattack and accuse the other person of being the, the one who's causing the problems. You're the offender. 
by making this claim and I'm, I'm the victim. They often get really aggressive in their denial. Uh, they really do turn the tables and attack the adult the child is disclosed to. Okay, so yes, very often people who have been accused of being a perpetrator of sexual assault or sexual abuse use this Darbo strategy as their defense. And I have a related question. What if somebody actually did not commit what they're being accused of, where they're not a perpetrator and they're truly false accused? How do they typically respond? They don't deflect the question. They don't ask you a question. In response, they say, no. I, I did not molest this child. They're very specific. And there's a lot of, of research on this, too, in terms of detecting deception. And what the research tends to show is that actually people don't like to lie. You can make them lie by pushing them in a corner. But more often than not, if people say no to you, that certainly counts in their favor because it is a direct response. Whereas individuals who are uh, accused and who really did do it will tend to deflect the question, ask you a question like, why would I do a thing like that? Or it, it, so on and so forth. That's that's the difference. And the, the guy who's done the most work on that is Avenon Shapir, Sapir, but there's also work by Rudisil and others on whether people deflect or people answer the question. And often people who are accused are hurt, falsely accused. They're hurt. They don't understand it. Why would someone do this? Why would she say that? I don't understand why she would say that. Because now they are genuinely having to rework their cognitive schemas. I thought I had a good relationship with my daughter, and she's accused me of something I didn't do. It's so interesting what you just said, Anna. And one thing that really has always struck with me um, when we interviewed all these experts in doing this uh, this series is that one of them said to me, do you know what a father says if they've been falsely accused and they really didn't do it? And I said, what? And they said, a father says, oh, my God, my poor child, how on earth can I help them? Why would she make up these questions? Who could have done this to her? And they would really be asking questions like that. Like, what do I do? How could this possibly have happened? Who's hurting them? And how can I help? How can I help her? Who's, who's actually hurting them? And what do we do to help them? I know this sounds strange, but can these crimes be conducted in public? Are they always private? And does somebody require, you know, vast lengths of time to commit them? People have no idea of how little time it takes to molest a child. I've had offenders admit to me that they molested a kid in the same bed with the kid's mother. I've had numerous women say to me, couldn't have molested her. I sleep in the same bed with him. And offenders tell me I got up to go in the bathroom and I walked in my daughter's room. I've had a, a case in Vermont in which a minister was watching TV, a uh, football game with another minister, got up to go to the bathroom, walked into the minister's, the other minister's 14, 13-year-old daughter's room and molested her and then came back to watch TV. People have no idea of how little time it takes to molest a child. Also, 
you know, I've talked to offenders who've talked about the mother being in the next room and the door open between them. For some offenders, that added to the thrill, uh, which was the, the adrenaline rush from almost getting caught and uh, fooling people. I have a tape of an offender who says he had 1,250 victims. He believes he's just averaging up the number of kids he molested per week over a 20-year period. And he says he took kids in his office. He was an athletic director in middle school, and he molested them with the door closed. He simply locked the door, and there were teachers on the other side of the door uh, in the gym. He also says he molested his nephew for nine years, and there were few occasions where other people were not in the house. People just don't understand offenders. It takes very little time to molest a child if you are sufficiently motivated to take that kind of chance. Wow. That's, um, that's mind-boggling. You, in your research, have seen that actually in a high-anxiety, high-pressure moment, someone might, even if it's a crazy moment to pick, act out because it's a stress reliever or... Actually, child molesters do often act out under stress. Yeah, that's how they're working through their anxiety? Yes. Kids often, not often, sometimes kids report child sexual abuse in the middle of an acrimonious divorce. That usually means that no one's going to listen to the child because the first thing that's going to happen is the father is going to say coaching. But the reality is that kids report during an acrimonious divorce for a number of reasons. One is if it's ongoing abuse, it might be the first time they feel safe. And that is if your child reports to you abuse in the middle of a divorce or any kind of acrimonious situation, the, the alleged perpetrator is almost inevitably going to scream coaching. But here's the thing. All they have to do is say it. They never produce any evidence of coaching. And the astonishing thing is they never have to produce any evidence. All they have to do is say the word coaching. Nobody asks them what kind of coaching. And the problem is that nobody analyzes these cases, or almost nobody. What happens so very often is you only have to say the word to get a significant percentage of people to believe that it must be coached. Okay, so that's interesting. I never thought of that or realized that, but we never came across someone who described to us just how coaching exactly works. There are certainly some people in the field who believe that you can coach kids at the drop of a hat, but I have looked into that literature extensively, and in the research it shows you can coach kids. Honestly, they have to work very, very hard to to coach a kid to misremember anything above the age, say, of two or three. John Myers was right in episode three. There are crazy claims out there that have no science whatsoever behind them. It's actually quite difficult to coach a kid, and I don't believe that any parent would even think to coach a kid in the kind of reflective, this is changing how I understand the world. Now I've got my roles confused. Um, Does everybody do this? I don't think that's possible. 
I've run into coach cases before, and they're often things like, Daddy did nasty things to me. Okay, can you, can you tell me about that? Nasty things. Okay. What kind of nasty things? He did nasty things. Like they don't even have any more detail than that, which is one of the reasons we look for specificity. We look for detail. We look for it from the child's point of view, not an adult's point of view on the outside looking in. We look for what adults think child sexual abuse is. We were told, I was told by someone I'm, I, um, that, yeah, often these kind of testimonies happen when a child's going to bed, they're taking off their clothes, they're in the bathtub, because that will con- unconsciously trigger a memory and then they'll, you know, free associate. Often when they're fully dressed, it doesn't come to the forefront of their minds because these acts don't happen when they're fully dressed for, for a lot of times. Any further thoughts that you want to share? You don't. Kids are always running around and doing something. They're not like adults. We sit down and reflect. Kids don't do that. But they in the bathtub, they're nude and there's nothing else they can do. So I've seen many, uh, I actually have seen many disclosures that started in the bathtub. We think of sexual abuse as affecting people emotionally and sometimes physically. But in fact, it, one of the major aspects of sexual abuse in the family is betrayal of trust. And it also messes up their understanding, hard-fought understanding of how to make sense of the world around them. For these little kids who are abused like this, what they have been told is you cannot trust the world. You cannot trust appearances. You cannot trust people close to you. You cannot trust people who say they love you. You can't even trust your family. It has an impact for the rest of their lives. I'm going to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're phenomenal. Thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you for speaking with such integrity and clarity. And, you know, thank you for taking the time. I know you're super busy and you fit us in. So, you know, we're just super appreciative. Thank you for having me. Okay, so that's it for episode three. Thank you so much, Dr. Anna Salter, colleagues Kirby Dick and Amy Hurdy. I'm your host, Amy Ziering. We'll be back with new material that we couldn't get in the series and new, very interesting conversations and insights from experts and guests. If you like the podcast and you have a minute, you can review it and rate it via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you might listen to podcasts. You can also stream it on HBO Max. Until next week. Woody Allen denies ever having been sexually inappropriate or abusive with Dylan. Woody Allen's therapist claims his behavior wasn't sexual as well. Woody Allen and Suni Previn were approached in December of 2020, and each was given two weeks to confirm interest in participating in an interview to address the allegations in this series. Their representative confirmed that the request was received, yet it was never responded to.